Well, if you brought your copy of God's Word with you this morning, open up to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. And this morning, um, we're picking up uh, from last week, and if you recall, Jesus um, had just finished a very, very long day of ministry, right? If you were here from last week's uh, message, he'd come down from preaching a rather lengthy uh, message. Uh, We have parts and pieces of it known as the Sermon on the Mount, and um, we saw there that he was followed by a very large crowd. And it seemed that almost immediately, um, having finished preaching that message, coming down from the mountain, that he was met by a leprous man. Um, And last week we looked at that encounter, Jesus healed this man, and then having gone a little way further, it says that he entered into Capernaum, and there Jesus was encountered with a Gentile centurion who was asking Jesus for a miraculous healing on behalf of his servant. And uh, we looked at that interaction last week, and we saw that Jesus indeed healed this man's servant. And then he made his way to Peter's home, which was there in Capernaum, and we saw that that Peter's mother-in-law was sick with a fever, and that Jesus touched her, and her fever immediately left. You, you might think of that, and rightly so, as a very busy uh, day of ministry for Jesus indeed. And if you think about it, there's really no telling how many encounters like these Jesus probably had along the, that, that course from off the mountain, following the leper into Capernaum. There's no telling really how many. We know that Matthew included those three very particularly. However, it was a very long and busy day of ministry indeed. And then we see when we get to verse 16 of chapter 8, as we did last week, that the sick, imagine this, the sick just kept coming. It's not hard to imagine, is it? Um, And those who were apparently um, stricken with uh, demonic um, oppression, they were showing up in 8.16. It says, now when evening came, so we know it's at the end of this extremely long day, they brought to him many, and again, this is, it's, it's nondescript, but it's many. It didn't say few. So there was quite a f- number of individuals who were still being brought to him, those who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were ill. Again, a very... A long day of ministry in the life of Jesus. And Jesus, recognizing how impossible it was going to be to get some much-needed rest, it it does seem, to get a little downtime uh, before they just kind of repeat and do that same day all over again. The very next day, Jesus then makes a decision to depart from where they were staying and to cross over the Sea of Galilee to the other side of the sea. And again, it would seem that it was for the purpose of getting some much-needed rest. And um, here I've given you a little picture of just the landscape. It's thought that uh, this point five right here is probably where the Sermon on the Mount, somewhere in this area where the Sermon on the Mount would have been preached. And then Jesus immediately saw the leprous man, healed him. He made his way here to Capernaum in this region up in here where the, uh, the Gentile centurion, his slave was healed, Peter's mother-in-law. And as evening bore on, Jesus said, hey, it's time for us to uh, move 
um, away from here. There's, it's going to be impossible probably to get any sleep at all through the entire night. And so he gives an order for he and his disciples, those close to him, to move on from there across the sea. And it's these next three pericopes that we see in Matthew's gospel. A pericope just simply means um, a, a, a um, unit of thought. So that's what a pericope is in the scriptures. You have these units of thought. And it's in these next three units of thought that um, we see this movement, leaving Capernaum to go over to the other side of the sea. And in that movement, in verses 18 through 21, we have Jesus giving a description about the costliness of discipleship. And then in verses 23 through 27, we see that uh, it's dealing with Jesus' lordship over nature as they're crossing the sea. They get on the boat, they're crossing the sea, the winds and the waves. And then when they get to the other side of the sea, there in verses 28 through 34, you see a little uh, section here, a little pericope dealing with Jesus' lordship over the demonic realm, a unit of thought there on Jesus' lordship even over the demons. So having thought perhaps there's so many people coming to us for healing, we need to leave this place and get on a boat and go to the other side of the sea in order to get some rest, some much-needed rest for ministry. And uh, as he starts to leave, he has an encounter with two individuals. When he gets on the ship, he does fall asleep briefly, but is awoken by his disciples because of the winds and the storms. And then when he gets to the other side, he's encountered by these demoniacs. And so it's not very restful, you might say, for Jesus and his ministry of miracles. And so this is where um, we are this morning, and in particular... This morning, you and I, we are going to start and just look at this first one right here. When Jesus has a brief yet very poignant encounter with two individuals, and he gives some very simple statements dealing with the cost of discipleship. Look at verse 18 with me. It says in there in Matthew 8, 18, now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. So here he's probably still at Peter's house. He's healed his mother-in-law, and people keep coming. And it says that he spent that evening healing many. And so he gives orders then to depart and go to the other side of the sea. Verse 19, then a scribe came and said to him, so before he leaves uh, Capernaum and gets on that boat to go to the other side of the sea, he's engaged now with this man, a scribe, one of the religious leaders in Judaism, a scribe, a teacher. And he says to Jesus, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus answered to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, in the good side on this, here it seems for the first time, for the first time in Matthew's gospel, we see a positive response to Jesus and his public ministry. Amen? I mean, he's been out teaching and preaching and healing all kinds of people, and there may have been other positive responses, but for the first time, Matthew is now inserting a positive response to Jesus and his public ministry with this 
scribe. Now, there was a, briefly in chapter 4, verses 18 through 22, there was another little section there where there was some positivity with regard to Jesus, but he hadn't really officially kind of started his public ministry yet. It was when he went up to Peter and his brother Andrew and to James and his brother John while they were mending their nets and working with their fathers, and Jesus uh, called them to follow him, and it says that they left their nets and they left their family business in order to become followers of Jesus Christ. And we don't get many details, hardly any details at all, with regard to the conversation, but something must have uh, divinely happened in the thinking, in the lives and minds of these men to walk away from the family business to follow Jesus the way they did. And so that indeed obviously was a positive um, aspect of a response to Jesus' ministry. But this one seems to be a little bit unique. And uh, it does seem that this scribe, again one of the Jewish religious leaders, um, would have been one of those who on that same day had previously heard Jesus preaching the gospel of the kingdom what we refer to as the Sermon on the Mount. So this scribe, this teacher, would have been a part of the crowd listening to Jesus' teaching with regard to the sermon of a need for repentance in order to enter into the kingdom of heaven, what that looks like in the lives of those whose hearts and lives have been changed, the Beatitudes. This, this scribe, this teacher himself, would have been listening to Jesus on that day. And um, he obviously would have been one of those uh, there when Jesus finished that sermon, whenever Jesus said at the very end of his sermon, he says, therefore, anyone or everyone who hears these words of mine and does them may be compared to the wise man who built his house on the rock. And then in 26, uh, here, and everyone who hears these words of mine and not doing them may be compared. So the scribe, it seems, it seems that the scribe... <clears throat> This, Jew, this religious leader is one of those having both heard the message of Jesus, seeing his works, seems to be wanting to be one of those who acts on Jesus' words, as we see here in verse 24, as he was finishing his sermon. And it even says here that he refers to Jesus as a teacher, again, which in conjunction with the rest of what this scribe says to him would obviously be a very positive step in the right direction toward repentance in his life and thus his desire for entrance into the kingdom of heaven, right? It would seem to be a very natural and obvious flow of narrative, of the history that it was, that was taking place with this man in relation to Jesus. And again, notice verse 19. Notice the bold proclamation that this man makes. Then a scribe came and said to him, so the scribe comes to Jesus and says, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Wherever you go. Now, just think about it. Does this not sound like the stuff that makes up a really amazing conversion story? I, I think that it does. Uh, when someone hears the gospel, sees the power of Jesus to heal broken, sick bodies, uh, gives due consideration to all of these things that he's taking in and then declares their willingness to follow Jesus wherever he goes. I mean, we would say today, what more is needed, right? What more could be needed? Um, 
altar call, baptism, welcome to the family of God. This scribe has, in essence, kind of done some of the very basic things. He's made his response. He's made it known. I want to follow you, Jesus, wherever you go. But what we see is that Jesus did have a little bit more that needed to be said. We see this in verse 20. Notice again verse 20. And Jesus said to him, Hey, welcome to the family of God. There's water right over here. Let's baptize you. You're in the family. Well, he didn't quite say it that way. He said to this scribe, interested in following Jesus wherever he went. And it seems a little bit enigmatic, doesn't it? Like, what? Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, it seems clear that Jesus isn't questioning the sincerity of this scribe's profession or interest or desire. But yet, Jesus does make another statement of his own here. And it seems to be for the purpose of clarification for this man. Of just how difficult it will truly be if this scribe indeed desires to and actually follows Jesus wherever he goes. Like, Jesus has an understanding that this is going to dramatically change your life. And it's like Jesus is wanting reaffirmation from this man that what he's claiming that he's willing to do is going to be a very difficult thing for him to do. Jesus seems to be going out of his way to make certain, to make a connection with this man, with this scribe, and what he's claiming he's willing to do. Are you truly willing to consider the cost of discipleship and of following me everywhere I go? After all, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But I, the Son of Man, have nowhere to lay my head. The implication being that it's a better life for the foxes and the birds than it's going to be for Jesus and anyone who makes such a radical decision to follow him wherever he goes. No place to lay his head. It's going to be hard. It will be difficulty. It will be costly. It's probably going to cost you certain creaturely comforts at a minimum. And so Jesus wants this scribe to really consider that cost of discipleship before putting his hand to the plow of following him wherever he goes and then deciding when they get to the other side of the sea, well, now, wait a second. I didn't actually, um, I, didn't, I didn't really think that this was what it was going to be like. I, I didn't know that I was going to have to get enfolded into a body of Christ and mingle with so many people that might actually step on my toes occasionally and not call them hypocrites and leave because, after all, God and I have our own little thing worked out. So following Jesus kind of then becomes the imagination of our own minds and we kind of make it what we would like it to be. And so Jesus is kind of letting this guy know, if you will, right up front, hey, it's, it's, going, to be, it's going to be difficult. This is not going to be a walk in the park. Are you sure that you really want to do this? 
And, and so it would seem that Jesus wanting this man, and then probably I would assume every other person, every other person that would dare to make such a proclamation of following Jesus wherever he goes, seems that Jesus would want him and the rest of us to give due consideration, almost, if you will, a reconsideration uh, to the genuineness of our commitment to following Jesus wherever he may take us. He would want us also, like this man, to consider the true cost of discipleship when making such a radical decision. After all, it's the easy to say, but it's the hard to do, right? It's the easy thing to say, it's the hard thing to do. As a matter of fact, listen to these words from the Apostle John on how Jesus regarded the faith of many who were believing in him. And why Jesus might know a thing or two about the necessity of being certain of one's commitment to following him. Listen to the Apostle John on this topic. He says here, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many, what did they do? What did the many do? Believed in his name. And we say what? Hallelujah! Where's the water? They're in the family of God. The second we see this kind of a phrase right here, we, we immediately make the assumption that, man, this guy, these, these professions must be legitimate. But notice John here. He says, so they, many believed in his name when they saw his signs, which he was doing, the, mir- the miraculous things that he was doing in 24. But Jesus, on his part, he was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And then in 25, and because he had no need that anyone bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. John all but says that Jesus had no faith in their faith. Jesus knew what was in men, and he didn't thus entrust himself to them. He wasn't clamoring over the fact that they were all of a sudden jumping up and saying, yes, we believe, and and. The, the immediacy, the, that, that seed, it fell on some rocky soil and it sprang up immediately. But Jesus understands that there's going to be some hardships that are going to come along in life. And will that seed actually take root? Or is it just going to be a spring flower that's here and gone the next moment? Seems that Jesus has an understanding of this. And so as there was these many who were believing in his name, Jesus was not entrusting himself to them at all. And then John, the same apostle, when we get to his glorious chapter 8. I don't know why I called it glorious other than it is glorious. Um, Jesus gets more specific about not having faith in people's claims of faith, which shows, if you will, how false professions in Jesus truly are part of the human experience. It truly is a part of the human experience, and why Jesus didn't entrust himself to such empty professions. And probably the reason why the Spirit of God had Matthew record what he recorded, these words here this morning, where Jesus purposefully slows this scribe down and causes, calls him to give deeper consideration to the things that you're saying. Are you certain that you're going to be able to follow through with this commitment that you're making? This is going to be hard, and it's going to radically change your life if you follow me wherever I go. Notice John in John chapter 8 now. 
with Jesus. It's a little bit longer, but it makes the point. As he was speaking these things, here we see it again, many believed in him. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, he said, if you abide in my words, then you are truly my disciples. Gives a conditional clause then there. If you abide in my words, then you are truly my disciples. So Jesus didn't just hinge it on their profession. Jesus gives a little more clarification and, and attaches said profession of belief in him to the aspect of if that confession actually changes your life by means of true repentance, and then that's the new heart that we talked about today with the new covenant, right? The new covenant in his blood that takes out hearts of stones and gives us hearts of flesh. The Holy Spirit indwells us, and the old is now gone, and behold, all things are made new. We once were slaves to sin, and now we're slaves to righteousness because Jesus is our king those kinds of things. If you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciple and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. So we see here that there were many Jews who believed in Jesus and again, that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing and Jesus doesn't seem to be overly uh, challenging them on the sincerity of their said belief but he just gives some clarity with regard to what that then belief should look like in their understanding. Anytime someone professes to believe in Jesus, that's a good thing, right? Of course it is. A profession of faith in Jesus today, from our perspective, is sacrosanct. And sometimes we, we elevate just the confession itself of belief. We elevate the confession of belief itself to be such a high bar to cross that it can never be challenged. If someone, it seems today in this more easy believism culture, ever raises the red flag and just says, I believe, that can never be challenged. But what we see here with Jesus is with the scribe that we're going to be looking at, he doesn't necessarily challenge him, challenges him, but he broadens out his understanding of the commitment that he's making. And he's saying, are you certain that this is what you're signing up for? You need to understand that following me will be hard and it's going to change your life. And it might not change it for the good now on earth, forever and eternity, absolutely for the good. But in the here and the now, it might get really messy very difficult, full of persecution and sufferings. Are, are, you sure you're, are you sure you're down for that? Because there's no need to put your hand to the plow now and then back out later and say, no, I, I think I was just a little confused. Yeah, he's a good guy, he's a good teacher, but probably not that Messiah guy. So Jesus seems to just be doing this. Notice he keeps going here, John does. And they answered him, these Jews who had what? These Jews, who, the many who had believed in him, they answered him. After Jesus says to them what he says, we are Abraham's seed and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? They're already pushing back against Jesus. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. And the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus is saying, listen, if the Son makes you free from sin, you will be free from sin. They didn't understand all the depths of the theological meanderings that we might can 
ferret out now because we have the totality of the scriptures. They didn't have that at their disposal, although Jesus had it in his knowledge base. And so Jesus isn't trying to give them some long rendition on um, this truth that saving faith actually works, but he does say, listen, if the Son makes you free, if the Son frees you from sin, if the Son frees you from a, from a Adamic curse, you will be free. You will be free indeed. You're not going to be perfect like Jesus. You're not going to be perfectly sinless like Jesus, though we strive for that because he's our Lord, though we strive for that. And when we do sin, what do we do? We repent. And you know what? You know what? It might be possible, maybe, to make it through one whole day without thinking a bad thought, right? Why? Because the Son set us free. Is there power in the Holy Spirit? Is there power in the, the atonement? Or is there no power? I say there's power. I'm going with power. Power in the blood. That's what I'm going with. And so with every temptation that comes knocking at my door, I don't have to answer. I don't have to walk around a little bit glass half empty. Well, you know, I'm going to say, no, I do not have to answer the door. There's power in the blood. When the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Amen. Now, verse 37. I know that you are Abraham's seed. Yet, notice the change of the conversation really quick here. Yet you're seeking to kill me because my word has no place in you. Now, wait a second. These were the guys that just said they believed in his name. What's going on here? I thought belief in his name was sacrosanct, and when somebody believes in his name, it's settled in the heavenlies forever. They believed, and that's all that matters. Well, I, don't, I, I think Jesus teaches us something, and then what he's doing with the scribe, we're going to get back to him in just a second, makes that point very clear. Verse 38, I speak the things which I have seen with my father, therefore you also do the things which you heard from your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham's our father. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, you would do the deeds of Abraham. But now you're seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God, Abraham, this Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, we are not born of sexual immorality. Now they're attacking Jesus' miraculous virgin birth the scuttlebutt that would have been going around town. Mary conceived out of wedlock. Right, it was of the Holy Spirit. Uh-huh, sure it was. Here they're attacking the very virgin birth story, truth. You were born of sexual immorality. We have one Father, God. See, we've got you there. You're not even of God. Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not even come of myself, but he sent me. Verse 43, Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. Jesus gave them the answer. They have ears to hear not. But they believed in his name. They have ears to hear not. You, verse 44, you are, you, of, you are of your father the devil, and you, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning 
and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Wherever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So how are we to understand this interaction? How could it be that many Jews who are believing now all of a sudden, according to Jesus, are children of the devil? And, you, and what do we say? Oh, because, well, look at their life, see? Exactly. Look at their life. Their life did not bear fruit in keeping with genuine repentance. Their life immediately turned against Jesus. Their life immediately became accusatory against Jesus. Their life immediately became, we want to kill you. That's right. That's what you do. Bad trees bear bad fruit. Jesus has already said this. That's exactly what you do. You look at their life. But we've gotten ourselves trapped in a culture today that we say, you don't look at their life. The, the life doesn't even matter if they said they believe. Sacrosanct, they're in. We have an easy believism culture in the church today that believes that lie. Jesus is having nothing of it in his day. He says they're children of the devil. They didn't actually have a genuine belief in Jesus though they claim to. Some might get upset that Jesus wasn't being overly sensitive in dealing with their false faith claim. So it goes without saying, it seems, from Jesus' perspective that not all professions of faith or belief in him are genuine. What would you say? Which is exactly what he says in the next verse in 45. He says, because, but because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. We believe you. You do not believe me. Jesus straight out says that their profession of believing in him wasn't true. He told them straight up, you do not believe. You claim belief, but you do not believe. And your life bears witness to that sad reality because he laid the gospel of the kingdom out before them and called them to come, called them to repent, called them to turn to follow him as the son of man, the son of God, and they would not. And so by the end of this conversation, 46, you go all the way down to verse 59 here, therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, to kill him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Remember, it says that Jesus, uh, Matthew told us that in Matthew chapter 4 that Jesus would spend time teaching in the temple and preaching. So he would go to the Jews and he would teach in the temple and then he had his, like, his mountainside sermons where it would be a mixture of Jews and Gentiles gathered together. But he went to the temple and here we see this teaching that he, this interaction that he was having with them inside the temple. He went out of the temple. So all of this, all of this John stuff, simply to show you that when Jesus didn't just agree with the scribe who professed belief in him and his willingness to follow Jesus wherever he went, but instead gave this man reason to question his commitment, Jesus gave that man reason to reconsider and then to truly consider the cost of genuine discipleship was because Jesus knows all men. 
and that all men oftentimes make decisions when feeling somewhat emotional, only later to have a change of mind and to fall away from said emotional commitment. Have you, have you ever known someone to do that? To make an emotional commitment and then to fall away from that emotional commitment. Have you ever, have you ever done something like that? Probably all guilty to that to some degree or another, but there could be no greater decision that we make an emotional commitment to and then fall away from than who we say that Jesus truly is. Here's a quote from John MacArthur's commentary on this point. He said, Jesus knew human nature is fickle. Would you agree? It's fickle, unstable, self-centered, and that many people are attracted to him, to Jesus, by excitement, glamour, or the hope of personal benefit. And there we would insert what? Your, your get-out-of-hell-free card. Personal benefit. If I, you, mean, you mean if I just say this prayer and walk an aisle, I get my get-out-of-hell-free card? That's right. If you just believe, you don't go to hell, and instead you go to heaven. Human hearts are fickle like this. We do things from emotional excitement and glamour and for the hope of personal benefit, such as he includes being healed or fed, the very things that were happening in Jesus' day. And they are quick to jump on the bandwagon when things are going well, but as soon as the cause becomes unpopular or demands sacrifice, they want to jump off. At first, they look as if they are alive for Christ and often give glowing testimonies. But when their association with him begins to cost more than they bargained for, they lose interest and are never seen again, possessing that same commitment that they professed in the beginning. How many people do you know personally who were at some point in their life really into Jesus? Who now... I mean, they're still okay with Jesus. It's not like they're maybe anti-Christ. They're still okay with Jesus, but it's on their own terms, of course. Uh, they haven't faithfully committed to a local body and like forever. Uh, even though the New Testament is rife with not forsaking your assembling together, it's rife with all the one another verses that the fulfillment of the law of Christ looks like when you're living in biblical community with each other. That's irrelevant to them because they've got some kind of a special deal worked out with God outside of the scriptures that the Holy Spirit just told me personally. Holy Spirit isn't going to contradict what the Holy Spirit writ. It's just not going to happen. Yet, they at some point in the religious past, like so many other of these individuals made a profession of belief, claimed that they would follow Jesus wherever he went, and here today they have no genuine commitment to Jesus and his gospel of the kingdom than the average non-believer. But what we say is, oh, well, you know, it just can get hard, and so they've... But, they're, but they believed. They believe, and if you ask them, they're going to say, yeah, I, I believe. I just don't... I, I just don't really have a heart that hungers and thirsts for righteousness. Uh, the Beatitudes. Uh, 
Uh, yeah, and so we could go through the list. I, I just, I'm just kind of lacking. I, I used to have that, but I don't, I'm, just, I'm just struggling right now. Well, brother, you've been struggling for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, five years, two years. Let that not be us, brother and sister. Peter says that we need to, if we don't see the increasing work of the Holy Spirit in our lives in an active, ongoing basis in 2 Peter chapter 1, go read your assignment. Just read 2 Peter chapter 1 later today. Peter says if we don't see the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit actively alive in us, we have reason to give reconsideration to his choosing and calling us. We need to check our spiritual pulse is what Peter's saying to make all the more certain that you're in the faith. Sometimes they move away from us because they weren't really among us. It's a very sobering reality indeed, but I think that probably most of us know individuals that fall into this camp. Obviously none of us, because look, where are we at today? We're gathered with the body of Christ, right? We've gathered with Christ's body. We recognize the importance and the need of gathering together as a body, that there's support and energy and encouragement. Because, man, when the church scatters, does, does it get hard out there? You can say yes. You can say yes. Yes. Does it get hard out there to, to walk the walk, to talk the talk, to be an ambassador for Christ everywhere you go? Yes, it gets hard. Are there a multitude of temptations that come barraging your heart every single day of every single week? The answer is yes, there is. It's not easy, and so we need one another as the body of Christ to gather, to gain strength and encouragement from the body. This is why we do what we do. This is why when we're singing these songs, I want to hear you singing to the top of your lungs to the glory of God because you're releasing all that pressure from the previous week to the glory of the King's name. <laughs> no better place to do it than here. It's what the body is for. That's why on Sunday morning, this place is not for soft evangelism. Like almost every church out there today, and I'm not casting stones, I'm throwing boulders. It's a complete misunderstanding of what the scripture says with regard to what the church is to be doing. Listen, listen, we, we need one another because it gets really difficult and hard out there because we want to make certain that we love each other enough that none of you here becomes like one, one of these individuals that I'm talking about that you know of who have just kind of slipped away from the church, slipped away from the things of God, and their life makes no more impact for the kingdom than the average nominal unbeliever. I mean, nominal unbeliever, and that even some nominal unbelievers tip their hat to God, think that Jesus is a kind person, a good teacher with good morals. There are kind unbelievers out there that even would recognize that. They've grown up in this culture. And so with what Jesus did with this scribe to whom he was talking with, Jesus perhaps may have felt that he was just maybe a little too eager in his original commitment. Doesn't say, but nonetheless, Jesus put a check on his zeal. I'll follow you everywhere, check. Let's give this some due consideration. Let's, uh, let, me, let me really let, let you think about the reality of what you're saying here because it's not going to be all that easy. Listen to how the Apostle Paul, in just a few verses, uh, kind of affirms this. Notice, 
in Acts 22.4, Paul said, I persecuted this way. So this scribe said, I'm going to follow you, Jesus, wherever you go. Paul says, I persecuted people just like that, purposefully. I went after them. And it wasn't just Paul. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering both men and women into prison. Do you think maybe somebody's zeal for following Jesus when they see the miraculous or they're fed, it might be good to check that zeal and say, hey, are you, are you sure? Because when you sign up for this, you may be signing up for death. Now, eternally, the glories of heaven forever and ever, absolutely. And so that's where we keep our focus. But in the here and now, there may be some persecution. Paul said this to the church in Corinth, for I am the least of the apostles and not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. That's what you're signing up for. Are you, hey, hey, scribe, are you sure you want this? In Galatians 1.13, For you have heard of my former conduct in, Ju in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And then later in verse 23, But only they kept hearing, He who once persecuted us, they personalized it. They were the ones being persecuted, is now proclaiming the good news of the faith which he once tried to destroy. Paul, writing to Pastor Timothy, said, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Paul, writing to the church at Rome, said, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse and the reason why we have absolutely no connection with these verses whatsoever is because we've lived under a bubble for the last 250 years, this experiment of the American experiment, where those who come to, the God, who come to faith in Jesus Christ can do so without hardly any persecution at all. You get outside the United States of America, this is the warp and wolf of what it means to come to faith in Jesus Christ. There were more, it seems like there are more martyrs with each passing year, martyrs of Jesus Christ with each passing year. We are an exception to the norm here in America. And in the soil, in the soil of that ease and prosperity, it has bred and, and, and given birth to and sprouted forth an easy believism that says all you have to do is believe, and that's all. No persecution. It's all about prosperity, wealth, and health. It's completely upside-down world to everything we read in the Scriptures, completely. Oh, prosperity of soul. We can talk prosperity of soul. We can go into the Old Covenant and talk about how if you follow the Lord, your, your crops will continue to have, you'll have good crops and your animals will continue to have animals <laughs> and your wife, children. We can do that, but we're under a new covenant, friends. We're not under the old law. So we, you can try to make that connection all you want, but it's, it's a bad connection. In the soil of the prosperity of this American experience, have given birth to easy believism in the things that Paul talks about here, we have no concept of. And this is why when Jesus stops this man and says what? Hey, I'm glad you're excited about wanting to follow me wherever I go, but you, do you realize that the Son of Man doesn't even have a place to lay his head? 
This is not going to be easy, and it probably will cost you your life. Are you certain, before you put your hands to the plow of following Jesus, that that's what you want to do? And I'm going to tell you right now, it's starting to heat up here in the good United States of America for us. It's starting to heat up. It's encroaching. And let it be so, to the glory of God. We know the end. From, we know the beginning from the end. Death has no sting. Things may get harder for us here, but it's the way it's been happening for our brothers and sisters around this world for two millennial now. That's, that's the reality of it. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse may become something that we hold a little bit more dear and can understand a little more closely maybe in the next 100 to 150 years, maybe 10 years. I don't know. The slippery slope's getting slippery. Yeah, there's good patriots out there fighting back to resist the moral decay of our, the decline in our culture. But listen, who's sovereign over it all? God is. And, and what's God going to do? Well, we went through the book of Daniel. Go listen to my entire series, and maybe it can encourage you with some of those concepts of end times. You can't stop it. You can be as patriotic as you want. You cannot stay the hand of God with patriotism. We fight like all get up because we believe in righteousness and justice on earth. That's why we fight. But we could find ourselves eventually fighting against God. His will, then we have to say, Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Just like we saw in Matthew chapter 6. Just like we saw in Matthew chapter 6. Following Jesus will come with many difficulties. If you're not out living for Christ and using your lips to proclaim his good name in your life to shine forth the good deeds that are in keeping with genuine repentance, you may not be feeling the rub of the difficulties that come with following Jesus, but when you do start speaking this way, you may lose some friends. It probably will happen. And then, in a similar fashion, another of the disciples said to him, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me. Allow the dead to bury their own dead. Now, this disciple here is a disciple of Jesus in the sense that he has perhaps been following Jesus around, um, part of the large crowd, um, maybe even since the beginning of Jesus' teaching, preaching, and healing ministry. doesn't say. And it seems that this man, perhaps hearing the scribe, declare his willingness to follow Jesus wherever he went, also decided to make his commitment known to Jesus as well. Jesus said, hey, we're, hey, guys, hey guys, Peter, Andrew, James, John, we need to get, we need to go to the other side. So the scribe's like, this may be my last chance. Hey, I'm going to follow you. And this guy's like, hey, I'll, I, need to, I need to do something. It's in, I'm in the moment. I'm feeling it. I need to do something. So maybe this guy also sought to make his declaration of commitment to Jesus known as well. And so in verse 21... He said to him, um, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. I'm sure you picked up on the word first, right? Lord, I too will follow you wherever you go, but first. Uh, before that, permit me first to go and bury my father. This is the um, classic commitment, non-commitment approach to following Jesus. I'm with you, just not yet, in a little bit. And it's worth noting here that this man's father actually wasn't dead. 
This phrase was a common Near Eastern figure of speech that referred to a son's responsibility toward his father and the family business. This man was telling Jesus that he too would follow him wherever he went after the passing of his father, the allocation of the father's inheritance, and the family business was wrapped up. And who knows, this father... His father might not even have been close to retirement age, and as such, what this man was saying might have required another 35 to 40 years of his life to even get to the place where he could do that. Ultimately, this guy was the committed, not committed guy. All in to follow Jesus one of these days when it's more convenient, when I can wrap up the family business. And Jesus shows that he's not interested in such half commitments as was being offered by this so-called disciple. And we saw that in verse 22. Jesus said to him, follow me. Follow me. And allow the dead to bury their own dead. Jesus lets this guy know that's not going to work. If you wish to follow me, I must come first. Uh, he was preaching the gospel of the kingdom in chapter 6, didn't have chapters, verse 33. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these other things will be added. Jesus is saying that's not going to work. I must come first. You must seek me first, my kingdom and my righteousness. Jesus tells this guy that the spiritually dead will be around to take care of family business and burials later. Jesus tells this guy that the high cost of following him will come at the expense of potential alienation from family and the potential loss of family inheritance. And it's for this reason that any person who contemplates becoming a disciple of Jesus, of becoming a follower of Jesus, of believing in Jesus, it would seem must first also to give consideration of the high cost of doing so. Are you willing to love him more than father and mother and even your own flesh? Are you willing to give all that you are for all that he is? Are you willing to be persecuted for righteousness' sake? Come what may, are you willing to follow Jesus wherever he goes? And it's for this reason that we had better be certain that Jesus is who he claimed to be. We need to be certain that we believe with a whole heart that Jesus is God, come in the flesh for the redemption of lost souls to the glory of God the Father. Because when you truly believe that, nothing else really matters, does it? Have you noticed that? When you come to that point of genuine conversion, have you noticed how nothing else really matters? You're like Isaiah of old. Here I am, Lord, send me. I don't know what you can do with this broken vessel, this jar of clay that you just kind of pieced back together and indwelt with your Holy Spirit, but whatever you can do with this jar of clay, Lord, I'm all yours. Use me as you will. That typically is the heart cry of the new heart when, all, when the old is gone and behold, the new has come. Have you noticed that? Well, to an individual who might say, no, I haven't noticed that, but I believe, I would direct them to John 8. I would direct them to 1 John 3. I would direct them to Matthew 5, 6, and 7. I could direct them in all kinds of places through the epistles. 2 Peter chapter 1. 
and say, make all the more certain of his choosing and calling you, brethren. Listen, I had a buddy for a short period of time in my life when I was in seminary, met him in the preaching class. He was an adjunct to the professor there. He was helping out. His name was Sukhwant Singh Bhatia. He's from India. He had won the H.A. Ironside Preaching Award, not in his first language, but in speaking, preaching in English. He outpreached all the native English speakers. He's a very gifted man. And so he was working on his Ph.D., and he was in the preaching class. And so we got to talking because he was trying to help this young Texan out. And he was saying, no, don't do it that way. Do it this way. No, don't do it. <laughs> don't do it like that. Do it like this. So in the course of conversation, I discovered that he was living in Denton, Texas, and commuting to Dallas. And that's what I was doing, living in Denton, commuting to Dallas. So we scheduled the time to meet up, and we got to meet his wife um, and his kids, um, Priyanka and Akanksha and Vanita and our girls. I've got pictures of Hannah as a little girl playing with Vanita over at their house, and they were just having fun. And and uh, Suquant uh, took three hours on one day, and he shared his testimony with us. And it, that three hours seemed like three minutes. Thing, the, 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 the working of the gospel in other countries outside of America is radically different than what we experience here. And what Jesus did to this scribe in saying, he says, I'll follow you anywhere. And he's, let me check that. It's not going to be easy. When Suquant came to faith, he had a brother do this exact thing to him. Suquant came to faith at the university, and he knew, he knew, he grew up a Sikh. He knew that putting faith in Jesus was going to be a radical thing. And so he went out under the, under the cloaking of night. He had been introduced to another Christian there that was under... Um, kind of the, the underground church. And he told this man, he said, I, I, I want to be baptized. And the man put a check. And he said, are you certain? Are you certain that you want to do this? Are you certain that you believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be? And Suquant said, yes, I am. And he said, not only do I want you to baptize me, you're going to cut my hair off and shave my beard off. And in the Sikh community, th these are the men that never cut their hair. If you see a Sikh, they're the ones with the turbans. They got their hair wrapped up because they never cut their hair. They, and they have their, their beard pulled up in a netting because they never cut their beard. And Suquant said, I want you to baptize me. And I'm dying to my cultural religion. You're going to shave my hair, cut my hair, and shave my beard. He said, are you certain? Yes. And I won't tell anybody that you baptized me or they'll kill you too. So he does this. Suquant went home, walked into the kitchen, saw his mother. Mom lets out a screech, a blood-curdling screech, and passes out. Dad comes running into the room, pulls out his revolver. His dad was in the military. Most Sikh, or some of them, that's kind of the militant part of the country. A lot of the Sikhs make up the Indian military. Dad pulls out a revolver and puts it to Suquant's head and says, if you ever show, show up in this house, you put one foot back in this house again, I'm going to blow your brains out. Get out of here immediately. He didn't grab a thing. He, he left immediately. 
He went back to the university, started packing up his stuff. That night, he had family members show up in the dark of night trying to kill him. He fled from the university, made his way down to New Delhi, and in the process of God's providence and sovereignty, he landed up in the, in the hands of Ramesh Richard, who was preaching at New Delhi Bible Church and was a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. They connected, told stories. Ramesh Richard made passageway for Suquant to America, where he got his undergrad at the University of North Texas, his THM at Dallas Theologic, and his PhD and won the H.A. Ironside Preaching Award. I just gave you a five-minute sketch of what we got for three hours. There were things that he said in there that would blow and did blow my mind away of how God is at work saving people. But what, this, what Jesus did with this scribe, this is happening in a lot of places around the world today. And they are being asked to consider the cost of following Christ. We can't hardly even connect with that emotionally today because we have it so easy, don't we? We have it so easy, it costs us nothing. Oh, well, my reputation got a little stepped on. Oh, I lost a couple friends. Suquant's family was hunting him down to kill him. And this was just about 35 years ago. So as best I can, my encouragement to each of us who showed up this morning is to when we made our profession of belief, did, did we consider the cost like this? We're living in, a, in, a, in an anomaly in America. It's an anomaly. It's hard to connect with emotionally. I get it. But Jesus, nonetheless, would want us to consider the cost of following him. Are we willing to risk our reputation at work, maybe lose a job, have some neighbors think that we're a little bit weird, family members want to kind of disassociate themselves with us because we're kind of too radical? Are we... Are we willing to consider the cost even though comparatively it's not the same expense that some of these brothers and other brothers around the world have paid? Are we willing to make the cost to still be a follower of Jesus today? Or are we ashamed of the gospel of Jesus to where we just kind of softly peddle it where it's convenient and where it fits in nicely? I think that's our challenge. And then when we do the work of the evangelist and we're calling people by the gospel, to trust in Jesus Christ. Let's not forget to give a check. Sometimes emotionalism can kick in. And ultimately for us in our culture, that emotional piece is just simply, I'm freed from hell and I get the streets of gold. Jesus is wanting way more than that. He's wanting your life. He's wanting you to live your life in the here and the now for him. Yes, the streets of gold await those. Yes, the, the eternal kingdom awaits us in the future. Absolutely. And maybe we don't face the kind of persecution that scribe would have or that other man, the disciple or Suquant, but that's okay. It's what our suffering is and will be. Are we willing to consider the cost today of being known as one of Christ's disciples?